This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. This is episode 115, entitled The Origins of the Johannine Logos in the Hebrew Bible. If you are a regular listener to the show, I would like to personally welcome you back. And if this is your first time to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, I would like to let you know that this is the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us today. My name is Dustin Smith. As always, I will be your host. Hopefully all of my listeners are staying healthy, positive, and encouraged by these episodes as we explore these very important topics about God and His Son. We are shifting gears away from studying the Son of Man to looking at a new subject that is of interest to many. I want to explore a detailed topic that is of great significance to understanding the person of Jesus Christ. And that is the nature of the word slash logos in John chapter 1. An interpreter of the Bible would be hard-pressed to find a passage more influential in the development of Christian doctrine and church history than the prologue of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. So, for the next series of episodes, I want to focus on examining the prologue of John in hopes that readers can no longer be afraid of its contents. The tendency for many interpreters is to shy away from passages that are often abused or ripped out of context. Moreover, many readers spend most of their time when teaching the prologue of John to others, arguing what the passage does not mean, resulting in very little, if any, time given to talking about what the passage does, in fact, mean. So this series will aim to grant us a greater level of comfort and familiarity with the first 18 verses of the fourth gospel. In this episode, we will look at the Logos and its background to better understand what meanings it had and what meanings it did not have, in order to responsibly set the context that the initial audience of the first gospel could reasonably understand in regard to its prologue. For some, these sort of word studies come across as boring and tedious. But I want to both encourage and remind you that part of responsible interpretation, especially in regard to asking what does John 1 mean when it states in the beginning was the word, is to investigate what sort of concept could the author reasonably expect his audience to understand 
with such a loaded statement. It would be irresponsible and anachronistic to import a meaning of a noun into the text of John chapter 1 with which the author was unfamiliar. Of course, how an interpreter defines the logos has serious ramifications upon their own understanding of who Jesus is. What meaning or meanings did the logos have for the Jewish Christian author of the Johannine prologue? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is defining the Logos from its Hebrew counterpart. A good place to start is to draw on the expertise of standard Hebrew lexicons to see the range of meaning within the Old Testament of our target concept. The current standard Hebrew lexicon is the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, regularly abbreviated as H-A-L-O-T in footnotes of modern scholarly works. The H-A-L-O-T, or as I'm going to abbreviate it as HALOT, lexicon, under its entry for Devar, which is the Hebrew equivalent for the Greek word logos, has four definitions listed. So if I want to understand what the noun word means in pre-Christian Judaism, particularly within the Old Testament, I'm going to look into this lexicon and see what the Hebrew noun devar actually means. The Halot lexicon gives these four definitions. Number one, devar means word. And by word, it could mean a good word, the contents of a letter, someone's advice. It could refer to a royal order, or it could refer to regulations, the sayings of a person, someone's stories, a given reply in conversation, or a refusal given in conversation. So the first definition is word, and it has all of those sub-meanings within that first definition. Second definition given to devar, the Hebrew noun for word, is matter, M-A-T-T-E-R. And as a subheading under matter, it could refer to an affair, an occasion, the first time that something is accomplished, a case of something, a case of parties in scenes of judgment. It could refer to a cause or one's dealings with someone else. A matter could also refer to a task or someone's business. On rare occasion, it can refer to a history or an ancient record. So there, the second definition is matter. It has all of those sub-definitions. 
The third definition that the Halot lexicon gives for the Hebrew noun devar is something. S-O-M-E-T-H-I-N-G, something. And the sub-breakdown of this is that it could refer to a thing, potentially an evil thing, or even a great thing. It could also refer to nothing at all, more generally as any thing. It could be a thing that is indecent or a thing that is good. It could even be a good condition or something that actually happens. Or it could refer to, in the plural, as a period of previous events. So that's the third definition. Devar, the Hebrew word for word, could refer to something. And the last definition given to devar is word being the word of God. And the breakdown of the word of God indicates that the word of God, the devar Yahweh, indicates the affairs of God. It could indicate the matters of God that are spoken, or it could refer to the instruction that God speaks to human beings. So as we can see, the Hebrew noun devar is flexible to cover a spoken utterance, a basic matter, a generic thing, something that is either good or evil, or even the spoken instruction of God. Now, I would like to respectfully point out some things that are often assumed in readings of John chapter 1, verse 1, that are not listed here in the Hebrew Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament. And thus, these presuppositions could not even be on the conceptual radar of options from which the author of the prologue could choose if his primary point of reference is his pre-Christian Jewish heritage. For one, devar, the Hebrew noun in question, does not indicate a person. That is, devar never in any of its 1,400 occurrences within the Old Testament, indicates a conscious being who exists alongside God. Devar never refers to an angel or an archangel or any sort of personal messenger. Devar never refers to a conscious spirit. Stated plainly, Devar does not refer to a conscious person alongside God. Devar also does not indicate a plan in God's mind. This too is sometimes suggested in readings of John chapter 1, as if in the beginning was the word, should be read as in the beginning was the plan. But Devar, strictly speaking, does not have the meaning of plan. We just read through all of the definitions that the standard lexicon gives to it, and plan is not one of them. So, now that we have some information to work with, 
and we have eliminated some anachronistic readings from the possibilities from which the author of the prologue could have drawn upon, we can nuance our study a bit further. We do have a good body of data from which to work, but the prologue of John depicts the Logos that was with God as well as something that was used by God as an instrument in creation. The Logos, therefore, seems to be independent of God in some sense. As we see in John chapter 1, verse 1, the Word was with God. So, if the prologue is drawing upon conceptions of the Hebrew noun devar, that are available to him, likely from within the Hebrew Bible, then we need to nuance our study to look at particular passages where the devar of God is portrayed independently of God. So, it is to these verses in the Old Testament that we must now turn. Our second point today is nuancing the word as something alongside God. So we are going to look at the passages within the Old Testament to where the Hebrew noun devar is portrayed in some sense as alongside Yahweh. And we'll have to understand and try to figure out what those nuancings are actually trying to convey. First passage we will look at is in Psalm 33, verse 6, which says, By the word of Yahweh the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. Psalm 33, verse 6. In this passage, the heavens and the host of heaven are created. Yahweh is the sole creator. But Yahweh created by using his word as the vehicle through which this creation comes to pass. But the word here is depicted independently of Yahweh in poetry. Yahweh made the heavens with his word. But the word is not a conscious person alongside Yahweh. And this is confirmed by the parallelism in the second line of Psalm 33, verse 6, where the word of Yahweh is further defined as the breath of his mouth. This word, which was used as the vehicle in the act of creation, is the word of Yahweh's mouth. Stated differently, God speaks creation into existence with his powerful utterance. The next passage we will look at is in Psalm 107, verse 20. It reads, He sent his word, and he healed them, and he delivered them from their destructions. Again, that's Psalm 107, verse 20. In this passage of poetry, God sends his word out on a mission. And the reader learns 
about how the word was obedient in this commission along with its results. The spoken utterance of God is sent forth as an independent agent of God's interaction with his creation. The results are that the people are healed and the people are delivered. Now, there is an open question as to who is the subject of the verbs healed and delivered in this passage. Because it says, he healed them and he delivered them. Is God the subject or is the word that was sent the subject of these two verbs? Now, the Hebrew grammar will allow for both options to conceptually be correct. But the nearest antecedent of the two verbs is the word rather than God. So it's very likely indicating that the author of Psalm 107 wanted his readers to understand that the word that was poetically sent on a mission was the healer and deliverer of the people. Thus, the word is personified as an obedient agent that is sent to heal and deliver the people of God. But we do not get the sense that this powerful personified word is a distinct conscious person alongside God. We are dealing with poetry and personification. And the word is personified as an active agent in the redemptive acts of God. The next passage we'll look at is Psalm 147, verse 15. And it reads, He sends forth his command to the earth. His word runs very swiftly. Psalm 147, verse 15. We again notice an instance where the command slash word of God is sent on a mission. With the Hebrew parallelism present in this passage, the word is defined as God's command, that is, God's spoken instruction. The word is not a distinct person alongside God, but rather the word is a personification of God's spoken command that is sent on a mission. This mission sends the word to earth. So we can reasonably conclude that God and his personified command originated in heaven. In the course of the mission for which this personified word was sent, it runs very swiftly, further exhibiting the characteristics of personification. The next passage is a few verses later in the same psalm, Psalm 147, verse 18. He sends forth his word, and he melts them. He causes his wind to blow and the waters to flow. That again, Psalm 147, verse 18. In yet another passage where the word of God functions as a commissioned agent, we can observe 
the poetic personification taking place. God sends forth his word, which is paralleled as his wind, suggesting that the word is the breath of God's mouth. Clearly, the personification has not evolved into a conscious person alongside God. The personified word is sent to melt the ice and to move the waters. We are again left with some grammatical ambiguity in regard to the subject of the verb melt. Did God melt the ice or did the word melt the ice? Either is possible grammatically, but since the word is the closest antecedent to the verb, it seems to be the more likely option. Either way, God sends forth his personified word to melt ice and to blow the waters into motion. And that word functions as an obedient personified agent. Next passage we'll look at is in the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, verse 8. The Lord sends a word against Jacob, and it falls on Israel. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 8. We now move to the prophetic literature, but it needs to be stated as a reminder to listeners that two-thirds of the material within prophets is written in poetry. So reading passages in Isaiah as poetry should actually be the norm, not the exception to the rule. At the beginning of this oracle, the Lord God sends forth a prophetic word against his people. There is no question that it is the word that falls upon Israel, not God falling upon Israel. But this word, as we have seen before, is personified as an agent that is sent on a mission to God's people, without suggesting that the word is anything more than a personification of the prophetic oracle. Later in Isaiah, in chapter 55, verse 11, we have another very important passage to consider. It reads, So will my word be, which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Isaiah 55, verse 11. In this passage, we see God speaking and detailing for readers the purpose and activity of his word. We again observe that the word is sent as a personified agent. What is the mission of this agent? Answer, to accomplish the desire and purposes of God. In fact, the assumption in this passage is that when the word is sent out on a mission, it always returns in faithful success. 
we also are able to note that the spoken agent that comes forth from God's own mouth is an extension of his desire while still functioning as an independent personification. But this personification is not elevated to being a distinct person that has come forth from the mouth of God. So, these six passages seem to be the best examples within the Hebrew Bible, within the Old Testament, of the Word of God portrayed in some sense as an agent of God's purposes and plans. I strongly contend that studies on what the Logos means in John chapter 1 need to not only discern the meaning of what it meant in pre-Christian Judaism, but also focus on these texts where I've demonstrated that the word is personified as an independent agent of God. If John 1 and verse 1 is going to depict the word as something that was poetically with God, then we need to take seriously where passages written hundreds of years prior to the fourth gospel within the Hebrew Bible also depict the word as somewhat independent and with God. In conclusion, we have observed that the depiction of the word slash logos in the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John requires very careful attention on the part of interpreters who seek to understand the passage in its cultural context. It is far more reasonable that the author of the prologue would have in his mind a concept of what the Logos meant and expected his initial readers to also understand the authorial intent than to infer a definition of the Logos from the 2nd and 3rd centuries A.D. We noted that the Hebrew equivalent of Logos, which occurs over 1,400 times in the Old Testament, is the noun Devar. Devar is translated most frequently into the English noun word. And devar has an important range of meaning. Its four primary ways in which it is used is that of a word, a matter, a thing, and a word from God. Contrary to popular readings of John chapter 1, devar does not ever refer to a conscious person alongside God in the Old Testament. Nor does it refer to the plan of God held within his mind. We also observe that, like the depiction of the Logos in the prologue of John, the Old Testament depicts this spoken utterance of God in poetic personification, giving the creative and powerful speech of Yahweh a personality of its own.
when this word is personified in the Old Testament, it always appears in sections of poetry or in poetic sections of the prophets, just as the prologue of John is structured in poetry. The personified word of God acts as the agent of Yahweh, particularly in acts of creation and redemption. We also noted that when the word is personified, it is almost always portrayed as a sent agent of God, obediently carrying out the purposes for which it was commissioned. Furthermore, the personified word becomes the subject of verbs. Every one of these points appears in the prologue of John. And in light of that undeniable fact, the depiction of the word within the Old Testament should be the primary starting point for responsible interpretations of what the fourth gospel likely meant in its portrayal of the Logos that was there in the beginning with God. Since the Logos in pre-Christian Judaism was the creative utterance of God rather than a conscious person alongside the Father, this study strengthens the case that the flesh that the Logos became is to be regarded as high human Christology. While this creates considerable difficulty for those Christological reconstructions that insist that Jesus consciously preexisted as the Logos of God. If the word in the Old Testament is never a person, then that is not a concept from which the author of the fourth gospel could have drawn upon in its portrayal of Jesus. Join us next week as we continue to explore the portrayal of the Logos in the prologue of John's gospel within its Jewish context. Please consider supporting the Biblical Unitarian Podcast as it aims to promote the sound truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You may check out this episode's description for a PayPal link. Thank you so much for listening to us at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and until next time, you folks take care.